0: all right, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word and for this psalm in particular. In it, we get to see David's heart and we kind of understand why you say he's a man after your own heart. And we want a heart like that today. So I pray that you would use our time in this psalm to chip away at all the grievous ways in our hearts and make us more like your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, well we close our time together in the Psalms today, and I can think of no better place to end than in Psalm 139. So throughout our time in the Psalms, we've seen the wonderful works of the Lord. We marveled at his creation of the world. We marveled at how he sustains it and provides for it. We've trembled at his judgment on sinners. We've seen his miraculous interventions to save his people. We've heard from God's own mouth what he is like. And then we've seen him prove with his works over and over again what his character is like. Well, in Psalm 139, David focuses on the personal works of God. On the surface, David David is answering the question, how much does God know about me? But in the course of answering that question, he is actually teaching us to search and know God. And when we do, we uncover valuable, really precious truths about God. We discover a God who is as personal as he is powerful. Our searching uncovers a God who so intimately knows his people that he individually customizes them. He makes distinct bodies for each one of them. He numbers their days and orders their steps he gives to one an extroverted personality and he gives to another physical strength we discover a god who keeps watch on us through the night hours and david helps us see that this personal god is worthy of all our devotion psalm 139 is in our bibles to stir our hearts up in devotion to god so that we too can sing the devotional song search Me, O God, and know my heart. Now, in just a few moments, we're going to mine this psalm for the beautiful gems inside. But first, we're going to step back, we're going to get our bearings, and put Psalm 139 into its context. Okay, so far we've learned that the psalms, the entire book, most of them which were written during either David or Solomon's lifetimes, were later organized into a five book collection, a collection that retells the story of Israel and foretells the story of Jesus. It is a story that it's designed to just kind of map on directly to our own lives, so that it draws our hearts out to praise the Lord, no matter what season of life we find ourselves in. Well, the book opens with a two-part introduction, offering both a warning and a blessing. In Psalm 1, there is a warning to those who dismiss the words inside, but there's a blessing to those who meditate on them. Psalm 2 is a warning to those who reject the king described inside, but a blessing to those who declare their devotion to him. Well, then the Psalms set out to show us who this king is and where to find him or where not to find him. In books one and two, we see the rise and fall of the Davidic line. In book three, we experience Israel's exile through their laments and through their confessions. In book four, we experience Israel's return from exile This time they come back searching their history, going back to their roots until they recognize, wait, it's God who's king. It's God who is our home. Well, beginning in Psalm 107, Book 5 pictures a permanent return from exile. These Psalms picture a day when God is reunited with his people and they sing his praises in his presence. Book five is all about the hope and the joy that God's people have in God's presence and under his rule. In the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament doesn't end with the book of Malachi like our English Bibles do. It actually concludes with the Chronicles. And do you remember how the Chronicles end? Okay, They end with the destruction of Jerusalem and with the destruction of Solomon's temple. Uh, Israel ends in exile under King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, but judgment isn't the final word because the final two verses of the Chronicles speak of a God raising up a king who will send Israel home. So when Israel read through their scriptures from start to finish, they ended in exile, but also with the promise of a king to restore them. With this arrangement of their scriptures, Israel understood that even though they had returned to their physical homeland, they were actually still in exile. They were in spiritual exile. God was their true home, but he was no longer with them as he had been in the past. Remember, his spirit was gone from the temple and it never came back. Israel had irreparably broken their covenant with God. So he took his spirit from their temple. And like, as I said, it never returned, not even after they rebuilt the temple. So at the end of the book of Ezra, there's this sad scene when Israel gathers outside their newly rebuilt temple. It is pouring rain outside and they're there to kind of assess their lives and make a new commitment to the Lord. So they know they violated their covenant with God and they know their sin is why God has abandoned his temple. So while they stand there, kind of assessing their lives and getting drenched in the downpour, they just feel gloom. The, the weather just mirrors what's going on in their hearts. Even the priest, the people who were supposed to intervene with God for them, they hadn't consecrated themselves, not many of them, so even they couldn't even enter the temple. So the downpour of the weather just kind of mirrors the gloom in their hearts. But they make a plan that day to clean themselves up with the hope that God will, will see that they're trying and they're being good and he'll return to them and again dwell in his temple. And that is still what many of the Pharisees were trying to do when Jesus arrives on the scene. You know, If we can follow these laws, they thought, maybe even make harder ones and follow those, surely God will return to us. But of course, we know that Israel's plan would never be enough. Laws can only make you look clean on the outside, but they can't cleanse a filthy heart. Israel needed divine intervention, or they would die in spiritual exile. But God's promise remains. A king will come, the end of the Hebrew Bible tells us. This is where book five of the Psalter springs to life. While book four looked back into Israel's history, book five looks forward. To the day God will return to them, and restore them. Book 5 anticipates that day, and it's full of praise psalms. Okay, There are two hallelujah sequences in the books. These are the praise Yahweh songs, like Psalm 118. And Book 5 also includes the songs of ascent, like the psalm we read last week, Psalm 130. The songs Israel would have sung as they uh, walked their way up Mount Zion to the temple. Well, all these Psalms are grouped together in book five for us to imagine the day that we will walk the streets of Jerusalem and be forever at home in God's presence. Well, Psalm 139 is in book five. It's in a final collection of eight Psalms written by King David. So if you were reading your Psalter all the way from book from Psalm one to Psalm 107, you realize you haven't heard much of King David at all since the first 42 Psalms. But here he's back again once more to remind us of God's promise to him and to Israel, that a king from his line will sit forever on the throne of Israel, and he will expand his rule to every corner of the globe. Psalm 139 has four parallel stanzas of six lines each. In each stanza, David does three things. He reveals a truth about God, he kind of teases out the scope of that truth, and then he responds to that truth. In stanza one, David declares this truth about God, he is all-knowing. The Lord has searched and known David, he's known him completely. For us to have any depth, this kind of depth to our knowledge, we would have to do some serious investigating, some digging, and some spying. And that's how that word searched is used in other places in scripture. It's used to describe what the 12 spies did in Canaan. It's used to describe investigative work that judges do. It's used to describe someone who mines and digs for gems. So God knows us so exhaustively. It's as if he spent his lifetime investigating spying out and mining our lives for more and more information in verse 2 David starts to show us the scope of God's knowledge he discerns our thoughts in verse 3 he knows our ways and our activities verse 4 he knows our speech everything we say David uses three pairs of opposites to show us the depth of God's knowledge. There's sit down and rise up. There's a walking a path versus lying down. He knows what's behind. He knows what's before. He knows what's already happened. He knows what's coming. He knows all your habits and ways of being and thinking and speaking and doing. I mean, this is more intimate than marriage kind of knowledge. So you don't know how often I make my bed or that I'm obsessive about not wasting food. Well, my husband knows those things, but there are things he doesn't even know about me. For instance, he doesn't know how fast I drive when he's not in the car. And he doesn't even know how much money I spend on groceries. Really, truly, no idea. But there is a kind of knowledge that is beyond my husband, but it's not beyond God, the one who searches and knows. But we should not suppose for a moment that what God knew about David was hidden to God until he searched it out. David uses words and pictures that we can understand to describe something we just can't grasp, something that is too high for us, like David. We can't attain this kind of knowledge, so he uses words we can understand to explain it. Well, the second part of verse 2 makes this more clear, where it says, you discern my thoughts from afar. So that Hebrew word afar isn't speaking of a physical distance. It's not saying that God, sitting way up in heaven, can kind of search your thoughts from afar. This word actually speaks of a temporal distance, a distance of time. God is far away from us in the sense that he's lived forever, and our lives are just this little speck on his timeline of eternity. And yet, as David later says, God knew you before you were even in your mother's womb. Now look at verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. So God knew how you would walk in today and answer the questions in our discussion. He knows precisely what you'll say to your neighbor the minute I wrap this thing up. Before you even consciously choose to speak, God already knows what you're going to say. And this is a kind of knowledge we don't even have about ourselves. God knows us better than the people who live with you. He knows you better than you know yourself. So God's knowledge is exhaustive, but it's also personal and loving. Verse five says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. God lays his hand on you to keep you close. He surrounds you, that's what hem me in means. His knowledge and presence enclose us, guiding us and protecting us on every side. So how does David respond to this all-knowing God? Look at verse six. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Okay, Just like us, David can't wrap his head around the omniscience of God. All he can do is marvel at it and enjoy it. In stanza two, David uncovers another truth about God. He is ever-present. So if God knows everything, and he has always known everything, is there anywhere I can go to escape his searching and his scrutiny? Well, David introduces another three sets of opposites to answer that question. So in these opposites, we see the scope of this truth. The first is in verse 8, heaven and Sheol. Well, the heavens are above the earth. Sheol is the place of the dead, or what they would have called the underworld. So God is above us, he's below us, and he is everywhere in between. In verse 9, David imagines taking the wings of the morning or dwelling in the uttermost parts of the sea. Well, the wings of the morning refer to the sunrise, which occurs in the extreme east. And the westernmost boundary of Israel would have been the Mediterranean Sea. So for him to go to the westernmost boundary of Israel. So God... He's furthest east, David could imagine, the furthest west David knew about. God is there, and he is everywhere in between. The third pair of opposites is in verses 11 and 12. God is in the darkness just as much as he is in the light, and he is everywhere in between. In fact, there is no distinction between darkness and light to God. He still sees, he still knows everything. Well, David expresses a natural response to this truth in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Knowing that God sees and knows everything, we are going to feel some discomfort at times. There are things that each of us would prefer God not see. We don't always want his light shining into the dark places in our heart. But he's inescapable. We cannot hide from him. So there is nothing else for us to do but, like David, welcome the searching and the knowing, and to find comfort in it, because the one who leads you with his hand, in verse 10, he can't be confounded by darkness or lost in death, then neither can you. God's undiminished light and his strong right hand will lead and hold you. In the third stanza, David reveals that God is all creating. Look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. Okay, the inward parts refer to your personhood, your personality, your thoughts, your feelings, the things that make you, you. But God also created your frame in verse 15, and that refers to your skeleton, your bones, the very thing that gives your body its unique structure. So I have broad shoulders and small hands because of how God personally designed my frame. In verse 16, God sees our unformed substance, and that Hebrew word here likely refers to the human embryo human life at its earliest phase of development, so early that the mother has yet to even know she's pregnant. The mom might not know this life, but God still sees and he knows about that life. And he knows it because he made it, he put it there. You know, the hum- human embryo is made up of all the different kinds of tissues that will develop into our major, the major biological systems in our bodies. That undetectable embryo contains all the material, all the genetic coding it needs to grow into a fully functioning image bearer, because in secret, God knitted and formed and wove it together. Those words knitted and woven refer to the skilled worker of a master embroiderer and weaver. So when the Israelites built the tabernacle in the wilderness, God gifted people with these specific skills with embroidery and weaving so that they could make the curtains for the temple. There were curtains on the outside of the temple and there were curtains in the inside. On the curtains in the inside, uh, they had to weave those artistic renderings of the cherubim into the curtains that separated the mercy seat from the rest of the tabernacle. Well, the same kind of mastery these people use to make those curtains is the same kind of mastery God used to make you. You can understand then why David pauses to reflect the way he does in verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. Okay, we've talked a lot about God's works in this class but have you ever stopped to consider that you are a work of God? Your body is God's handiwork. And David can't help but examine his body and conclude this is a masterpiece stamped with the signature of God himself. And this is not just male ego here. This is worship. David's like a newborn mom looking at her baby, or excuse me, a mom with a newborn baby looking at it, inspecting all of its parts, stretching out the arms and the legs, looking for family traits, admiring every piece. And he sees that every inch of him is a glorious work of God. And how might you think about, talk about, or treat your body differently if you consider this truth more often? Our bodies, we, are the work of God, and all his works declare his glory. So we should glorify him even with our bodies. Okay, back to verse 15, though. That expression, depths of the earth, refers to the hiddenness of the womb. So until the advent of the ultrasound in the 1950s, nobody could see inside the womb, and the development of life was just a marvelous mystery. But even now that we can see inside the womb and track those stages of development, we have all the more reason to marvel like David. The development of a baby in utero is nothing short of the miraculous work of God. But using the word earth in this verse reminds us that all this life, glorious as it is, begins and ends with the dust of the earth. So then in verse 16, David speaks of our limited days. So he wrote in his book all the days that were numbered for us, and they are numbered. These verses teach us that long ago in eternity past, God already knew you. He planned your body, He designed your personality, He established every one of your days from conception to the grave. Well, David concludes the stanza by responding to the implications of this truth. Okay, David knows that what God makes. God sustains. He doesn't create his masterpieces and then leave them alone to fend for themselves. Instead, he actively watches out for them. He thinks about them. Look at verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. God thinks about David because David is one of his works, and he thinks about you. So many thoughts God has about us, we could never count them. In verse 17, they're a vast sum. In verse 18, they're uncountable, more numerous than the sand. But it gets even better. These verses teach us that God never stops thinking about us. Verse 18, I awake and I am still with you. Do you ever forget about God? I'm sure he's out of our minds multiple times a day, but especially when we sleep. But when you wake... God is still there, still thinking about you, as he has done unceasingly since before the foundation of the world. So tomorrow morning when you wake up, greet the Lord. He has been with you the whole night, taking care of you at your most vulnerable state. David's response in verse 18 hints at a deeper truth because sleep is often a metaphor for death. And I think the subtle implication here is resurrection. We die, but we wake in the presence of God. In the fourth and final stanza, the truth David reveals about God is that he is worthy of our devotion. Okay, God's glory and worth demands that all evil be purged from the earth. God and evil cannot coexist They are incompatible, and that's the scope of his worth, worldwide glory in the eradication of evil. Okay, and David knows that friendship with the world is enmity with God, so he responds by pledging his loyalty to God. David wants nothing to do with God's enemies. These are people who are wicked. They are men of blood in verse 19. They are malicious and dishonoring to God's name in verse 20. These are people who hate the Lord and rise up against him in verse 21. And they call God's glory and worth into question. These These are the nations from Psalm 2, like Pam read this morning, who despise the bonds and cords that God as sovereign has put on them. And so they are raging and they are plotting to cast off those cords. And how can we, after knowing the goodness of God, And the blessedness of his ways side with people like this. If we love God, our souls hate violence and injustice. If we love God, our spirits should just zealously rise up to vindicate God when he is maligned and when people rebel against his good ways. So David is not taking personal vengeance on his enemies. These are God's enemies. And he is taking a stand with God against a wicked world of rebels who, if they could, would kill God. But not only does David respond to this ever-worthy God by declaring his loyalty to him, but also by asking God, in verse 23, to search and know his heart and to try his thoughts. And this is not self-righteousness. David isn't assuming that God is going to like everything he finds. Instead, he recognizes that all evil is unworthy of God. And sometimes that evil isn't just in God's enemies. Sometimes it's in his friends. And that thought grieves David. He wants to be worthy of God. So in verse 24, he says, See if there be any grievous ways in me. David wants God to search his heart and try his thoughts to identify those grievous ways. He wants God to expunge them and to free David up to live a life that is truly worthy of the Lord. So far from running from God's scrutiny, David opens himself up to it. He welcomes the spying, the investigating, and the digging because for God to know David this way is life everlasting. Look at the final line of the psalm in verse 24. And lead me in the way everlasting. Okay, there is no way everlasting for those people who resist the searching of God. Those people perish in their grievous ways. But to those who welcome God's searching and have their sins removed, God personally, with his right hand on them, leads them in the way everlasting. Psalm 139 is a devotional psalm meant to train our hearts to call out to the all-knowing, ever-present, all-creating, ever-worthy God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Now we haven't talked at all about where Jesus is in this psalm, but he is there. He as the embodiment of that righteous man from Psalm 1, Jesus probably sang this song with his disciples. He probably meditated on these words. And what a depth of meaning it must have had for him as he thought about his father skillfully weaving together his body in Mary's womb. He knew the value of God's presence as he'd quietly wander off, sacrificing sleep for precious time in prayer with God. And then as he drifted off to sleep, a weakness he hadn't ever known before, He was comforted knowing that his father was right there with him all along. But we also see Jesus in this divine knowledge. We see the God-man who predicted his death. He predicted the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter. We saw his divine knowledge when he knew what the disciples were discussing, who would be the greatest in the kingdom, or when he read the thoughts and the intents of the Pharisees' hearts. We see him as the ever-present Lord when he promised to be with his disciples everywhere they went, even to the ends of the earth. We know Jesus as the light that overcomes the darkness, and we see his hand in our new birth. Through his death and resurrection, we have been reborn in a mysterious, hidden act of recreation. God has knitted and woven our hearts back together raising us from the dead, breathing new life and new spiritual abilities into our dying bodies so that we can forsake all our grievous ways and walk the way everlasting. We see Jesus as the ever worthy king who sits in heaven while God makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. Jesus is that king who will come and slay the wicked and root out all grievous ways from his kingdom. And finally, when we read the way everlasting, we just hear echoes of Jesus' voice calling, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. You know, at the beginning of our study, I said that the purpose of the Psalms is to draw out our hearts to praise the Lord. And I hope your time in this study has done just that. So as we kind of go our separate ways today, I trust you'll take these words and continue to read them and meditate on them and to pray them. Remember, there is a promised blessing inside, and as you read these psalms and your heart is stirred to praise the Lord, you are doing exactly what God designed you to do, and you will find that promised blessing. Now last night we had a pianist with us and we were able to sing this song that was under your handout, May Jesus Christ Be Praised. And I would love it if we could sing it today, but I just think of this song as the song for every season. Um, This is the song of the ages.